The Boston Podcast Network is proud to present the Academy of Special Needs Planners, the podcast. Now here's your host, Kevin Urbach. Welcome. This is Kevin Urbach. I'm the National Director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners. And today I have a special guest, Michelle Fuller. She is a special needs planning attorney based in Southeast Michigan. Um, She is a longtime planner for people with special needs. She's a member of the advisory board for the Academy of Special Needs Planners. Um, She's a member of the Elder Law and Disability Section of the State Bar of Michigan, a former chair. She has won the Unsung Hero Award for the State Bar of Michigan for her work with people with disabilities. And today, I thought what we would talk about is a little bit of the basics of planning for a loved one with special needs. This will be kind of a 10,000 foot view of all those things that parents and grandparents or anyone who is planning for a loved one with special needs needs to think about and consider. So Michelle, um, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for uh, welcoming me so nicely here. I'm happy to take part of this. And um, one of the things that you didn't mention is that I'm also a mother of four and uh, four wild teenagers. and. I also have a daughter with uh, autism, and so I've just recently also completed my own estate plan. So having gone through this experience, it's uh, as a planner, it's interesting sitting on the other side of the desk. You know, we do this every day, but when it's yours, um, you really experience it uh, the way that your clients do. So, um, so let me think a minute. So let's say we have um, parents or grandparents. I assume anyone does this planning. Is that correct, or is it just parents that you see mostly? No, I definitely see parents, family members, sometimes siblings who want to care for a sibling with disabilities or a niece or nephew. You get all different family members, anybody who's got a family member with disabilities that they want to make sure they protect uh, in their, you know, in planning. If, so if something happens, then how do they leave money to them properly? Um, so it can come from any family member. So when somebody is coming into your office, what what are the things that you need to know in order to help them? Sure. Um, Well, first, families can come in at any time. There's no good or bad time. Of course, sooner is better, Um, but there are some basic building blocks of things that I need to know and help prepare. One, if they they have an estate plan already, I, I need to see that. Um, it's helpful to see it ahead of time, but it's not critical. Um, when you say estate plan, is that a, what is that? Could you describe what an estate plan is? Because sure. many people don't know. No, I think you're right. Uh, to me, an estate plan is any written plan for what happens to you if you become incapacitated or pass away. So a lot of times it's in writing and t- people typically think of a trust or a last will and testament. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It could be uh, naming properly naming beneficiaries of of a, of a financial like an account or life insurance. Those are all parts of estate plans that sometimes people don't realize that they're actually completing an estate plan, um, and that they have one. Um, and so those are all critical pieces. So if they have one in place, like a, something that they've gone to an attorney for, uh, beneficiary designations. So anything in writing that they already have in place is really good to see. The other thing that's incredibly helpful is a list of their assets. And we're all in the midst of tax season right now, uh, preparing to file taxes, and it's a really good time to reassess what assets you have. So who owns them? 
So it sounds like um, people sh should be doing their own estate plan, but what makes planning for a loved one with special needs different? Because one, you want to make sure that if you're leaving someone money, that you aren't going to make their life worse. I think that's really critical. Um, and what do I mean by that? Uh, that if they are receiving government benefits, you're not going to you know, have unintentioned consequences of disrupting all those benefits or leaving them vulnerable. Um, can they manage the funds? That's the other piece of it. So they may not, they may have disabilities, but be able to work and not require public benefits. Uh, but leaving them money to manage may not be in their best interest. So it sounds like um, public benefits is a concern. So it sounds, yeah. is it because that if they receive money in their own name, it would interfere with their eligibility for benefits? Absolutely. I know that, uh, especially if somebody receives supplemental security income, if you leave them money, it will disrupt their benefits without any other type of planning. Um, if they are just on Medicaid benefits, it often, you know, su supplemental security income is often tied with Medicaid, but sometimes people receive other types of benefits that they would not leave, lose, but the Medicaid benefits is, a, is an important piece. So what do I mean by that? Um, Medicaid is the only resource for a lot of special in-home services, supervisory services, um, sheltered workshops, any other types of supports, it can also, that can be disrupted. So if you have a child who's receiving, uh, going to a sheltered workshop, and grandma leaves them money without properly, you know, it just leaves it to them in their own name, it may disrupt them attending this this program that they receive. So, or community mental health support, any number of things. And I'm sure that's not what grandma intended. So that's why it's really important to see somebody who knows what they're doing with special needs planning. So it sounds like if I leave money to this um, loved one with special needs, it'll interfere with their benefits. So. Should I disinherit them and not leave them anything? That is absolutely not what you should do. Uh, unequivocally, do okay. not do that. Um, if you go to an attorney and that's what they recommend, go somewhere else. Uh, so a lot of families struggle with, well, how do I know who to go to? Um, a great resource is the Academy of Special Needs Planners website, the uh, specialneedsanswers.com. You can find an attorney near you. If they are a member of the academy, that means that they've invested time and resources to mastering this area. And so that's how you find one. That's your first step. But wouldn't it be easier if I just left all the money to the, the loved one with special needs sibling and asked them, you know, just mm -hmm. take care of, of your sibling with special needs? That seems like a plan that might work. Uh, I see that. Uh, even now once in a while, but uh, that is absolutely not something that you want to do. Why? Because it leaves the most vulnerable person in your family incredibly vulnerable. And you may have a great family and a great kid that you say, well, their brother or their sister knows what I want. They will take care of their brother or sister. They have promised. But, you know, sometimes you have no control over what happens to your child and you won't be here to find out. So if that child that you left, a, you know, a lot of times a double share, let's say, what happens if that child gets divorced? Is that money gone? Probably. What happens if they lose their job and they need that money? 
are they going to reach in and use it? Chances are they will. Um, if I've seen this happen when there's bankruptcies, that money is gone. So you're leaving your child who needs the most protection, the least protection. And it's you know done with the most loving and, and best of intentions, but um, they really do need to go see an attorney that specializes in this area that knows what they're doing with special needs planning to set it up properly. And one of the biggest tools that we use is a special needs trust. So, okay, so it sounds like leaving it to someone else isn't a good plan and just disinheriting them isn't a good plan. So you're saying that there is a way to leave them money, preserve their eligibility for benefits, is that, and that's what this special needs trust is, is that correct? Exactly, it's a way to leave, properly leave money to a loved one with disabilities. So it's, sometimes it's called a supplemental needs trust. I've seen it called an amenities trust, which is not my favorite thing to, to call it, but sometimes it's what it's called. But typically we call it a supplemental needs trust and it might have the designation of being third party, third party special needs trust. Uh, third party means that it's someone else's money, it's not the individual's money that you're planning for. So what kind of things should a family be prepared for when talking about a special needs trust? Is it something where the person with disability can manage it themselves? Absolutely not. They usually appoint a trustee a parent can serve as initial trustee. This is helpful, so there's a couple of guidelines. The first thing is that an experienced planner will typically draft a custom trust um, that's just for the person with disabilities. I usually always recommend that it be a separate trust from the revocable living trust of the parents. Um, so we don't like trust within a trust. I always like a standalone that's all about the person themselves that you are uh, doing the planning for. So for instance, it might be the John Smith Third Party Special Needs Trust. There's a couple reasons for that. Is One, I like to have a trust that performs one job. It, it has one intention, one, one thing to do. So if I have my own revocable living trust, I don't want to have a, another trust buried within it. And so if you have a standalone Third Party Special Needs Trust, all the rules and all the nominations are all about and focused on that person that you're planning for. So let's say it's the John Smith Supplemental Needs Trust. You're going to think about who the trustee should be for that child or for that loved one. So, and it cannot be them. So they have no ownership or control over that money. That's really critical. Um, so the other thing is it allows for you to invite other family members to contribute to that trust. So if parents are, say, in charge of the money or in charge of that trust during their lifetime, that's totally fine because let's say that uh, a grandparent wants to leave money, how do they do it properly? Um, and we tell them how to properly name as a beneficiary that particular trust or in grandma's trust or will, how to properly name that trust so that they can leave that loved one with disabilities money without disrupting any benefits or rendering them very vulnerable. So if a special needs trust is set up, and I presume it typically doesn't get funded with mom and dad's assets until they're both dead, right? it sounds very limiting, special needs. Does that mean it can only be used to pay for things that might be related to the disability or it can only be used in very limited ways? That's That can be one of the perceptions, and that's really 
um, not true. The only thing that it cannot do that, well, I really recommend not happen. You don't want to give cash to the beneficiary out of that trust. You want to basically pay bills and it can pay for anything that is not otherwise available. So being a trustee of these types of trusts is not, uh, it's, it can be really tricky. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the articles that you and I co-authored is on traps for the unwary and it's all about uh, what common issues that special needs trustees face. Uh, the most common mistakes that they made, and that was published in Estates and Trust magazine if you're looking for that. And it can be helpful if, as a parent, you're doing this planning, you're thinking, well, who's the right person to nominate? Um, but a special needs trust can really pay for almost anything. You just, you just want to make sure that the trustee understands the benefits that the person receives, because that, more than anything, determines how that trust is administered. So the trustee, it sounds like, has a lot of discretion to decide how to spend the money that you're leaving for your loved one with special needs. Um, how do they exercise that discretion? Is it laid out in the document what you can and can't spend money on? Or is there another way that um, they can kind of understand what your wishes are for helping out that loved one with special needs? That's a really important component. Um, understanding all of those parameters. So discretion, what does that mean? That means that the person that you're naming as trustee has to exercise their judgment. They make decisions best on the best interest of the individual that they are acting for. And so there are some really important considerations that are the building blocks of planning. One is the memo, certainly the memorandum of intent. That there are guidelines within the trust itself, okay? So there are some resources there. They have to abide by whatever the trust code is in their jurisdiction, wherever, they're, wherever they live or wherever the trust is being administered. But one of the most important things that a parent can do is leave a set of guidelines that are not in the trust itself. So they aren't legally binding, but it's the representation of what the parent's hopes, dreams, and guidelines for their loved one. And then we call that a memorandum of intent, or not usually a letter of intent, but usually a memo of intent or memorandum of intent. And again, it's not legally binding, but if you think about, you know, when you're, if you aren't here anymore, what are the critical things that would make a child, make a difference in your loved one's life? What does someone need to know about your kid? Um, everything from education, their likes and dislikes. If you've seen the movie Rain Man, his parents didn't leave a memo of intent. Tom Cruise, as his brother, had no idea that he liked what his routines were, um, what medications he took, and you could see the whole movie is centered around his fumbling around with, with these decisions and how you could see the effect that it had on his brother. Um, Dustin Hoffman did a great job. So if you haven't seen the movie, see the movie. But it also just really underscores the importance of a parent sitting down and putting together this memo. And it could be, you know, in special needs families, you'll typically see one parent who kind of takes the lead, um, is the main resource for, who is the main advocate, who takes the child to the, the uh, doctor's appointments, who oversees the medication, who manages all of this, and it's all up in their head. 
all this information about the history, the likes, dislikes, routines, doctors who to, who they're allowed to be with, who they're not allowed to be with, um, all of that is up in that person's head. And so if something happens to that key person, everything falls apart. And the, the problem is you may have a child that's not really able to voice what those, what their likes, dislikes are, um, and it can make a big difference. So what's in a memorandum of intent? Why is that so critical? First of all, you don't need to see a lawyer to do that. Um, it's something that has to be written by the parents or the main person or guardian, whoever's caring for that person. So there are guidelines on the Academy of Special Needs Planners website, specialneedsanswers.com. And there's a, a, a really nice guide that's written there. There's some other uh, resources as well through Mass Mutual. Um, they have special care advisors, but again, this is not something that you get from a professional. There are some guidelines though. So, so it sounds like when we're doing an estate plan for you know, a loved one with special needs, um, we set up a special needs trust. So that preserves eligibility for public benefits. So they're gonna continue to get those and it sounds like there's trust that is used to enhance their quality of life above what public benefits provides. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. So as part of the estate plan, I presume when uh, dealing with parents who've been taking care of their loved one with special needs throughout their entire life, um, it's gotta be very difficult for them to figure out who's going to manage their care after they're gone. Is that part of this planning? It's absolutely part of the planning. It's a critical transition from, and it starts not just after the parent's gone, um, because part of my practice is elder law. And what we see is a loss of capacity of the caregivers first. So and you mean the parents? The parents themselves, yes. And what's the plan during that process? Because if you have two parents and a child with disabilities who are all living together in the same home, and one parent is no longer able to care for themselves, or the, you know, it, sometimes it happens over time, sometimes it might be a sudden medical event, then you've got one parent left who's caring for two people now. And what if there's, there's an extended absence? What's the emergency critical plan for short-term uh, and then a more of a long-term continuing care plan for that person with disabilities if something, if both parents are gone? So what you don't want is a situation where it's incredibly stressful for everybody, emotional, and you don't want to create uh, an even more difficult situation by not having a plan in place. Um, and so that's where we have to make sure that we, sorry, we'll count to three and just get back into that. So you were saying that um that doing a special needs plan for our estate plan, really for a loved one with special needs, requires special planning. Um, and it's not just making sure that they're still eligible for public benefits, but you're also kind of deciding who's going to be that lifetime caregiver. And if something happens to that parent who's probably been providing all of that care for free, there has to be some kind of plan in place to how to replace them. Is that part of this plan? Absolutely. And it's one of those things that we talk about during an estate plan meeting that, you know, one of the things that we talk about at the Academy all the time is that it's not about the documents. It's not just about the documents. You can write a beautiful trust, but if we don't talk about these other transition plans, 
um, it's, an, it's an incredibly important piece of, of the puzzle. So you're right, the planning starts when we're talking about transitions. So the first transition is when that primary caregiver, that's usually a parent, starts to fail. What happens to that child with disabilities if the parent can no longer provide the care? And the first time you want to talk about that is not in the lawyer's office. <laughs> Right, that's a discussion. I think that sometimes that's the first time they do talk about it. I think it is. It yeah. is, and it can be very confronting, where you have to think about your own mortality, which is uncomfortable enough. But then some of the most frightening things are what's going to happen to my child with disabilities who cannot care for themselves, or maybe makes bad decisions if left to their own devices. Who's going to manage that care? And so most of the time, people just assume siblings are going to step in. But with the way that our society is, people are working very hard. They're probably, when that transition happens, they probably have their own children to manage, their own careers. They may not live down the street, um, and it may be very, very challenging. And parents assume that one or more of the children are going to step into those shoes, and that may not be the case. So do you, how do you plan for that? Do you... Uh bring in professionals or, I mean, what, what type of plan would you do for that situation? Sure. Well, first it starts with asking the question. Um, and then you bring the proposed caregivers into the meeting and talk with them about the reality of whether that's going to work for them or not. I remember having a discussion very clearly where a family was coming in and it was the first time this had been mentioned and their adult children that were expected to take care of their sibling were told this for the first time, and you could see they were visibly uh, startled by this, and said, I'm not gonna, I can't do that. They, they can't. And so just having the conversation and being prepared, as a parent, you have to be careful not to judge your children who may not want to step into their shoes. Um, what does that support look like? Um, and it might mean transitioning your child out into the community while you are well. It might mean something like a group home. Um, that's the time to look at it. And you may need a professional care advisor. You might need a care coordinator or case manager or something of that nature. So somebody who helps to transition. Um, there might be programs in your community that you aren't even aware of. And having that professional organization in like an ARC uh, or other nonprofits, uh, professional, they're a person on a team. There's a planning team for the family that consists of them, their, uh, the parents themselves, their tax advisor, their financial advisor, their attorney, you know, the estate planning attorney, as well as the future supports that their child with disabilities may need. So that might be siblings, in-laws, have a piece to play in this. Um, nieces or nephews or other extended family members. So it sounds like um, doing special needs planning is more than just putting together a special needs trust because I've seen in the past where um, estate planners have said they do special needs planning and in reviewing their trust the only thing they did was preserve public benefits by putting the assets into a trust but it sounds like special needs planning is a lot more than just that. Absolutely it is. It has it's not just about the document, because you can have a great trust, um, but if nobody knows how it works, why it works, or most importantly, the human element of this, which is, how do, what does the transition look like? What are the professionals in place? How is 
how is that person going to live? And most importantly, that memo of intent that the parents have to set down in writing because that is the written guide. It, it's the download of all of the advocacy, the history, the family, and the hopes and dreams that the parents have for their loved one. That's where that all belongs. And that is a living, breathing document that has to be updated. And I know in your practice, you recommend that people um, do that on the birthday of their loved one that they're planning for. They keep it updated every year. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other thing that I want to make clear, though, is just because they have a special needs trust, that only means they've named someone to manage that child's money. It doesn't mean that they have someone there to provide, like, um, where are they going to live? Who can make decisions about their medical decisions? Um, so there's a separate part of the planning, which I think is probably guardianship conservatorship for those loved ones who lack the capacity to manage their own affairs. Um, and is that part of the planning? Because typically I think the parents serve that role, but when they're not there. Absolutely. You need to have a full transition plan and supportive services for that individual. And think about more than just the public benefits, which is really just focused on money and healthcare. Um, it's more than that. It's where are they going to live? Who's going to make the decisions? Um, what, how do you transition from, say, a parent caregiver, which is pretty typical that I see, to perhaps a sibling? How do the courts transition that? Um, what are the resources available so that parents have continual education in this process? And one of the key things is, you know, when you go to a, a special needs planning attorney, we talk about the documents, but it's actually a very small part of the conversation. We talk a lot about pulling together resources currently, what happens when the parents become incapacitated themselves, and then what happens after they're gone. Because those are three huge transition points um, that have to be discussed and there has to be a plan. And it might not be just from the law office, there might be a professional care manager or benefits coordinator that might have to be pulled in. And it sounds like, this is going to cost a lot of money. Does it necessarily have to cost a lot of money to do all of this planning? I get that question a lot, and it can cost a lot of money, but there are also one of the art, I think, what we do is an art, I consider it an art, and one of the things that, that we do is create a plan that accommodates a family's needs. So if they don't have a, a you know, really complex estate and it doesn't warrant you know, thousands of dollars in you know, separate trusts and all that. There are some other resources. So um, you and I are both fortunate enough to represent, you know, nonprofits that administer what's called a third party pooled special needs trust. And one of the reasons that, you know, you and I we, we've been instrumental in drafting these is to provide a different way that parents can adequately plan for their loved one with special needs without investing thousands and thousands of dollars. And it's, especially if it's not warranted. Um, there are many benefits to this, and as a matter of fact, we wrote an article that's about managing this, and it was published under the uh, ABA, or the American Bar Association, about using a pooled trust for an estate planning purposes. So that might be something that, of course, uh, you'd have to go to an experienced special needs planner that knows to, how to pull together all the resources and create a plan that's really well suited to the family. Well, Michelle, I think we are just about out of time. Um, I want to thank you. It seems like we could have talked about this for a lot longer. It seems like we've just scratched the surface. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. <laughs> there are so many different elements to this. Um, yeah, pleased to do it. Okay. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's been a pleasure.
Um, it sounds like this is a very critical planning period, and I know you mentioned the special needs planning website. Could you remind us what that website is again? Sure. It is the Academy of Special Needs Planners, specialneedsanswers.com. So if you just Google specialneedsanswers.com or www.specialneedsanswers.com, it's a great place to find information. Um, as well as an attorney. So one of the last points I want to make is when should you go see an attorney? I think you can go see an attorney at any time, but some of the critical timing on this important transition period of age 18 is at least at, say, 17 and a half to start getting things in place so that you're ready to apply the month that your child turns 18. Okay. Well, thank you again, Michelle. And if you like this broadcast, um, we'd be happy if you if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to subscribe, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. So thank you.